Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, get a few friends to join you and walk through the Word Diet. If this isn't you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that position, so get them together and work your way through the Word Diet. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Galatians, the book on the Christian's relationship to the Old Testament law and our struggles with legalism. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. We're reaching the end of our study of Galatians, and right now we've reached Galatians 6.14, where Paul writes, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. First, we want to remember the context here. At the end of verse 13, Paul had talked about the Judaizers, that they boast about your circumcision in the flesh. And here he's saying, may I never boast except in the cross for our Lord Jesus Christ. The contrast there is immense. 1 Corinthians 1.31 is similar. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And in 1 Corinthians 2.2, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. John MacArthur notes that Galatians has been called the crucifixion epistle because the cross is mentioned at least four separate times. In any discussion of the true means of salvation, the cross has to be at the center. The cross tells the truth. It shows us to be sinners. MacArthur's certainly right here, but this passage and much of Galatians is actually much more about sanctification than justification. As MacArthur notes in his final appeal to the Galatians, Paul says there are only two options, either you glory in the flesh, verse 13, or you glory in the cross, verse 14. With respect to justification, we're saved by grace. We're not saved by our own works. John Stott says the truth is that we cannot boast in ourselves and in the cross simultaneously. If we boast in ourselves and in our ability to save ourselves, we shall never boast in the cross and in the ability of Christ crucified to save us. We have to choose. In other words, it's by works or it's by grace. And works is ridiculous. And so it's left to grace to save us. We don't deserve salvation. It can only be accepted as grace and as gift. But it's also true of sanctification as well, that we glory and boast in the cross. We don't boast in our own ability to follow after Jesus. We boast instead after his cross, through which the world has been crucified to me, and vice versa. As Paul writes in Romans 15, 18, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. Again, it's through Christ, everything we do through the life of the Spirit. Now, it's important to note and to know that the use of the word world in the Bible can refer to three different concepts. It can refer to creation or the people of the world. Think of John 3.16, for God so loved the world, talking about all its people. But it can also be a world system, which is the realm of sin. Classic passage on this is 1 John 2.15-17. through 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. 
This is obviously a reference to that world system of sin rather than creation itself or its people. James 4.4 is similar. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. I like what Keller says here. If you understand the gospel, you boast exclusively and only in the cross. Notice that Paul does not say that the world is dead, but that it is dead to him. The gospel destroys its power. Why? If nothing in the world is where I locate my righteousness or salvation, if there's nothing in the world that I boast in, then there's nothing in the world that controls me, nothing that I must have. The Christian is now free to enjoy the world because he no longer needs to fear it nor to worship it. And then this long passage from Eugene Peterson's commentary on Galatians, I love what he says here. This is what Paul proclaims and praises. Paul does not glory in Jesus' walking on the water, showing himself Lord of creation. Paul does not glory in Jesus' calling Lazarus from the tomb, showing himself Lord over death. Paul does not glory in Jesus' teaching on the Beatitudes, showing himself a master truth-teller. Paul does not glory in Jesus' touching the leper, showing himself the compassionate healer. He knows all those things and appreciates them. His life of faith is enriched by them, but he glories in the crucifixion. His boast is that God in Jesus entered the stuff of our everyday existence, where the lights and shadows mingle, where our good intentions and evil impulses vie for ascendancy, where hope struggles with despair, where men try their best and give up, where all ends in ugliness and injustice, where life is not fair, where things don't work out for the best. Paul doesn't boast of a God glorious in the heavens, untouched by the mess and confusion and ambiguity of our history. He doesn't assemble sonorous, multi-syllabled lists of God's attributes and boasts that no Greek or Roman or Egyptian God has half the qualities. No, far be it from me to glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Peterson applies it to us. Paul is singing the free life, celebrating the glorious liberty of the children of God. How did he come to it? The way that Christ came to it via crucifixion. Paul didn't become free by adding up all the courageous moral choices he had made. In defiance of the Greek culture in which he had grown up, he didn't get it by accumulating learning and virtue and wisdom in the Jewish heritage into which he was born. He didn't get it by retreating into the Arabian desert where he was free from the expectations and influences of others and free to be alone with God. He didn't do it by concentrating on the good times, the times when he preached powerfully or had clear sailing in his missionary travels or when the words came effortlessly and clear while he was dictating one of his famous letters. He experienced freedom when he was trapped in difficulties, caught in the contradictions and paradoxes of the faith, when he was shipwrecked, imprisoned, mocked. Paul didn't seek out the comfortable jobs, didn't hide from the opposition, didn't retreat from challenge. Everywhere he was up against indifference, malice, and ignorance that he simply couldn't budge. He was stuck in prison. He was interrupted by shipwreck. He was chased and beaten. A free man? All the facts are against it. And yet no one has written so convincingly, so influentially, so autobiographically on living freely. He locates the source of this free life in the cross by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And the fact of the matter is, that's where we will find it as well. Freedom does not come in simple rules. It does not come from abusing grace. Freedom comes from following a good and great God, walking, keeping in step with the Spirit, Jesus Christ crucified, him living in me, me living through him, no matter the circumstances. And in fact, tough circumstances often are where we choose to do that more effectively. 
Instead of running from those, we need to find the blessing that God has put us in, in that moment, living through Christ, Christ living through us. All right, let's go to verse 15. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Paul again arguing that circumcision or not is irrelevant, quite secondary, a theme that he's talked about quite often. It's the heart of the matter for the Judaizer. It's a non-issue or at most a secondary issue for the believer. That's not totally out of hand because we might not get circumcised for the wrong reasons. We don't do it because we can out of a sense of abusing grace, but the key is that it should not be pursued as a legalism. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's irrelevant, and it can get us in a lot of trouble as some sort of rule that we impose on others, as we've seen throughout the book of Galatians. What is relevant? Being a new creation. The classic expression of this, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. This was part of Paul's argument for his own apostleship way back in chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. This points to something that's internal rather than external, if you will, a circumcision of the heart rather than a circumcision of the male organ. It's the new creation of the New Testament rather than the law of the Old Testament. Circumcision is a mere ceremony, whereas a new creation is life-changing. It's the difference between works and grace something that's easy to define and categorize and put in a box rather than something that is somewhat subjective and hard to measure. We've seen this over and over again in Galatians, from the acts of the sinful nature to the fruit of the Spirit. These things are hard to measure. Ultimately, they are the greater things. Remember back in Genesis 1 how creation is formless, void, and dark. It's chaos until the Spirit of God hovers and turns it into order, form, and light. This is also a good time to revisit how we can minister to legalists. And it's, frankly, it's just hard to argue with a changed life. When a legalist experiences a spirit-filled Christian, not just one who abuses grace, but actually is walking by the Spirit with the fruit of the Spirit, how do you argue with that? It's very difficult. And it is perhaps the only way to get the legalist's attention. Let's go on to verse 16. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule to the Israel of God. This seems like a concluding verse, but there are still two more to go, but it has that feel to it. Key phrase here is follow this rule. So taking back to earlier verses, things like verse 14, no boasting. Verse 14, also the two mentions of crucified and or verse 15's belief in grace. The opening phrase here, peace and mercy, again, sounds like a conclusion but maybe it's merely meant as to point out something that is not exactly in the legalist playbook, living by peace and mercy. The last phrase is really interesting, even to the Israel of God. It turns out to be difficult to translate and debatable. The consensus here is that it's wishing for the Jews to have repentance and renewal. This would be similar to how Paul expresses it in Romans 9 and 10, and their proper use of the law and the other angle here is that the church is the Israel of God, figuratively. This has been Paul's argument, Galatians 3 and 4 in particular. Let me read Galatians 3.29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, right? Heirs of that kingdom of God that was Israel and has become the church. Two other passages of interest here, Romans 9, verses 6 through 8. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, 
nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. And so Paul's redefinition of Israel is done throughout Romans and Galatians. And then Philippians 3, 3, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. All right, it's time to take a break. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Kentucky and his Christian Community Bulletin, available online at pureradio.org and with free paper editions in store at 200 locations. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station and the show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we did Galatians 6, 14 through 16. Now we get to the end of Galatians, verses 17 and 18. Paul writes, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. The key phrase here is marks of Jesus. The term here in the Greek is stigmata, pretty popular word. It can mean figurative and literal here. Marks of Jesus, of course, were quite literal, but also figurative in a sense. This language is used throughout the New Testament. Fittingly, it's used to identify slaves, and here we're talking about slaves of Jesus, akin to what we read from Paul in Romans 6.13. And the marks can be internal, as in the new creation that Paul has talked about, as in verse 15, or it can also be a reference to the external markings, not circumcision per se, but the suffering and persecution that he talked about in verse 12, and we'll come back to here in verse 17. Certainly signifies that he's not a people pleaser. Remember, he had said that they got circumcision, among other reasons, to people please. The exact audience Paul has in mind here is not totally clear. MacArthur says perhaps Paul is talking to Christians in verse 17. Perhaps he means, I've endured so much in carrying the gospel to you. I've been attacked and beaten and stoned. Don't trouble me anymore. Let this letter settle the issue and don't let me hear any more hassles about your wandering faith. Or perhaps he's talking to the non-Christians, maybe to the Judaizers. He's saying, leave me alone. Don't harass me. You're big on physical scars, circumcision. I have them, the scars of Christ, not just circumcision. So don't question my authority, don't question my loyalty. Or perhaps he made the remark to both groups. One of the marks of the Lord Jesus, every blow that Paul ever took as a Christian was really aimed at Jesus Christ, and he had the joy of taking the punishment. Of course, this is not punishment for its own sake, but punishment for the sake of the gospel, and a punishment that put him in line with Christ who had suffered for him. So about suffering, what about us? In John 15, verses 18 through 20, Jesus promises, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Or in 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul is much more direct and to the point where he writes, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This should come as no shock to us. Consider Christ and the world's disrespect and opposition to him from the beginning. It began with apathy at his birth. He deserved a throne, but he was born in a manger. There was no room for him even in the inn. The Pharisees and his other religious opponents, death on a cross from the Jews and the Romans. Think about how it's pictured in Revelation, Armageddon, and then the post-millennial rebellion in Revelation 20. 
the worldly system's response to Jesus is and has always been apathy or opposition. And when it becomes opposition to us, that will result in suffering and persecution. Now, perhaps we're one talent or five talent or ten talent Christians in this regard, but all of us will face something if we're walking in line with Jesus. You cannot walk in opposition to a system and have no trouble. It just doesn't make any sense. Now, for one-talent Christians, we need to do the best we can with the one talent of persecution that we're receiving. And if you remember those stories, it's sobering to remember that the one with the one talent was the one who handled it the worst. So there's actually a lot more at stake in a strange way. It's a lot more difficult, apparently, to deal with the moments when I have one talent rather than five or ten What does that persecution look like? Well, it can be physical, verbal, social, family, and sadly, even within the church. That's part of what Paul is dealing with here. Now, what do they hate about Jesus? They hate his deity, for one thing. They don't mind calling him a great teacher, a great man, a prophet. The famous C.S. Lewis line about Lord, liar, or lunatic comes to mind here. It's the deity of Jesus that is so offensive and causes so much trouble. Or it's his uniqueness. John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4, 12, there's no other name by which we can be saved. 1 Timothy 2, 5, there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's the God-man Christ Jesus. The bad news is that Christianity is quite exclusive. It's only through Jesus. The good news is it's free. and In fact, it's actually more inclusive. You don't have to do anything other than accepting the free gift As we talked about earlier, his cross is a great offense. Big theme in 1 Corinthians for Paul. And in the context of Galatians, it's the empowering of Christ through the Spirit that is so difficult for legalists to handle. With respect to justification, they don't want it to be through Christ alone. They want to work for it. They think they have to work for it. And in terms of sanctification, the same thing. They miss that it's God's provision and our participation through the Spirit that allow us to live the Christian life. It's an attack on pride. It's saying that we're unworthy, right? It's only by grace, both in terms of salvation and sanctification, that we come into relationship with Christ. And finally, maybe they hate him because he pricks their conscience. We see this in Acts 2.37. The proper response there, the pricked conscience, is that people want to get baptized. But in Acts 7, we see pricked consciences leading to the stoning of Stephen. And those are the two basic responses. Either people hear the message and respond to it positively, or they respond to it negatively and lash out in anger, persecution, and inflicting suffering on Jesus and his followers. I like what N.T. Wright says about this verse as he's summarizing the entire book, particularly chapters 3 and 4, the heavy doctrinal section. As Wright explains, why write Galatians 3 and 4 if that was where it was going to end up? Why not settle for two families, two inheritances, instead of the single one between Jew and Gentile? Why not allow that people who want to follow Moses can do so, and that those who want to follow Abraham without Moses can do so too? Why not, in short, behave as if the Messiah had not been crucified. That is what such a position would amount to. Paul will have none of it. He bears in his body the only marks that count, not the knife mark of circumcision, but the cuts and bruises of physical persecution, of the stones that were thrown at him in one city, and the synagogue beatings received in another, of countless floggings, a beating with rods, and no doubt much besides. He is himself a living, breathing demonstration 
of what it means that the world is crucified to him and he to the world. This, as he suggests in 2 Corinthians, is what new creation, or at least its emissary, looks like as he walks in the world. And then finally, in verse 18, he finishes with the word grace, a fitting conclusion from the beginning in chapter 1, verse 3 to the end, and everything in between. This book ultimately is all about glorifying the cross of Christ and the grace of God. We're saved by grace, and we walk by grace, following a good, great, and gracious God. So now let's start into our conclusion and summary of Galatians, and I've got a lot of ground to cover here. Let's start with John Stott's summary of the book. He sees Galatians as questions of authority. How do we know who and what to believe? Think of the Bereans in Acts 17 and 11 who listened to Paul, but then went back to the scriptures to test what he had said against that. Here we have Paul and Barnabas going up against the Judaizers. Today we have a bewildering variety of opinions. Who do we follow? Estat says, for us, the loyalty should be to the apostolic doctrine of the New Testament. This is why the Bible is over the church, not vice versa. It's Christ through the apostles, through scripture, to teach us. And we need to rely on the scriptures and the spirit for us to walk with God, to know who and what to believe. Second, Galatians is about salvation, justification, getting right, being reconciled, restored into relationship with God, receiving forgiveness through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. Christ through his cross saves us. And then third, Galatians speaks to holiness, sanctification, the idea of controlling sinful desires and then positively living a life of love and righteousness, particularly as it plays out in Jew-Gentile unity. It's Christ through his spirit that sanctifies us. So Stott sums it up, Christ through the scripture to teach us, Christ through his cross to save us, Christ through his spirit to sanctify us. Next, let's talk about placing Galatians in its context. First of all, the context needs to be within itself, that we understand why the book is written, how it would be understood, how it would be meant to be conveyed by Paul. And the chief context here is that the Judaizers were messing with the Galatian believers And so there were questions of authority, who to believe, questions of which gospel, how good this gospel is, and then debates between grace and legalism, promise and the law, and what it looks like in everyday life, that the life of the legalist is not nearly as fruitful as the life lived in the Spirit. But Galatians should also be understood in the context of the New Testament as a whole. In particular, there's a Venn diagram-like relationship with the book of Romans. N.T. Wright is persuasive that we need to be careful not to think about Galatians without Romans or Romans without Galatians. The two should be read together and as complementary of each other. And of course, all of this is in the larger context of the entire New Testament. But Romans in particular is an important book to have alongside as you read and study Galatians. And then finally, we have to consider the entire context of the Bible and the Old Testament. If we don't have an understanding of Torah and law compared to the promise and the covenant of the difference between Moses and Abraham, then we're going to struggle to understand what Paul is talking about here. And then we also see the messianic references and the apocalyptic references from the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah, being fulfilled here, because the fact is that Christ appeared The Spirit has come. God has invaded the earth 2,000 years ago with his Son and his Spirit. 
And this is the unveiled hope that apocalypse is always about. Christ will come again, but the last days have already begun. We read this in Acts 2 with Pentecost, and so we live in light of those promises, in light of the grace of God, the life of Jesus, and the empowering of the Spirit. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet. This segment, we're continuing our summary and conclusions about the great book of Galatians. We start with the very first five verses of Galatians, the opening and the greeting. Verse 3 has grace and peace, which in some is the gospel message. It's also how he ends the book in chapter 6, verses 16 and 18. But the most interesting thing about the opening and what you should remember is what's added and what's omitted compared to Paul's customary greetings. He adds something about authority in verse 1, and then he provides a mini-gospel in verses 4 and 5. That's unusual, but it tells you what's at stake. He's going to deal with both of those issues early on, especially in Galatians, but really throughout, both the question of authority, his apostleship, and the nature of the gospel itself. And the greeting is interesting in what's omitted. There's no commendation and thanksgiving. And here we think of the Corinthians, who were a hot mess in lots of ways, but Paul still sees fit to commend them. In this case, the Galatians, he hops right into it and starts banging away, tells you what's at stake and how passionate he is about it. As to the gospel itself, Paul has some things to say about justification. It's all about Jesus, faith in Jesus, by God's grace. Paul is opposing a grace plus theology, a soteriology, how we're saved. It's only by grace. It's not grace plus. It's not grace plus circumcision, as in this context. It's not grace plus baptism. It's not grace plus getting your life right, and so on. It's not what we do for God, it's what God has done for us. Christianity is often reduced to do's and don'ts, but this is an error. The fact is the verb in mind we should have is done. Not do and don't, but done. Now, while there's a lot to say about legalism and its impact on justification, most of the references in Galatians really aren't about that at all. In fact, most of the references, for example, to cross and crucify are used as indirect applications to justification, but mostly it's about sanctification, a right relationship with God given the establishment of that relationship there. With legalism, you can keep yourself out of heaven, but Paul's chief concern is what legalism does in terms of our walk with the Lord. And there it's about Christ in us, but really there we're speaking about the Holy Spirit living in us. And that's the means of sanctification that Paul pounds throughout Galatians. Chapter 3, verse 1, the focus to keep Christ crucified before your eyes. Chapter 2, verse 20, the classic reference to Christ in me. Or chapter 4, verse 6, the gift of the Holy Spirit. N.T. Wright observes that the entire middle of Galatians is framed around the Spirit, starting in chapter 2, verse 15, and extending well into chapter 4. Early in chapter 3, he tells them to remember that sanctification is also by faith. Probably the most important verse in this regard is Galatians 5.16, Live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And the causation of verse 16, as we talked about, is A causes B, not vice versa. It's not don't gratify the desire of the sinful nature, and then you'll get to live by the Spirit. It's living by the Spirit that is the means by which we don't gratify the desires of the sinful nature. The Holy Spirit living in us is an unconditional but quenchable gift. And so we don't lose it. We just can throw buckets of water on the fire of the Spirit living in us. And so it 
is up to us not to do that. The verse also does not say, stay away from certain sins and you will not. And so we look at specific issues, and the legalist's response to this is to build a fence around the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And fences can be helpful, but they should not be primary. A fence goes from a tool that's useful to a legalism that's harmful if if it's viewed as a long-run solution rather than just a short-run tool. It's also a problem if we mandate it for others rather than just seeing it as something that's useful for us. Here we think of Romans 14 and the weaker and the stronger brother. It's a problem also if we don't see it as self-imposed, which it is, rather than specifically led by God or even worse, universally ordered by God. The sad thing for the legalist and the painful thing is they take gray areas and turn them into black and white, not just for themselves, but often for other people. Another category that's important is sometimes these problems are personal, sometimes the context is cultural, but we need to be careful that we understand it through a biblical frame, not simply a personal frame of reference or a cultural frame of reference that's particular to us. For some people, fence building of this sort is actually a career. They're legalists with a capital L. It's not just an event for them, it's a, it's a lifestyle. They live in slavery to what Paul refers to in Galatians 4, 3, and 9 as weak and miserable principles. And these are religious, but they're not spiritual and godly. And as Paul describes them, they're weak. They have no strength to save us. And they're miserly. They have no wealth with which to bless us. The other key verse about the Spirit-filled life, I think, is in chapter 5, verse 25, to keep in step with the Spirit. And this requires that we expect the Spirit to be on the move, that we develop a spiritual discernment and sensitivity through prayer, the study of God's word, and seeking godly counsel as we're alert to watch circumstances where the Spirit is opening and closing doors for us to go through. It requires good theology. C.S. Lewis said, we're all theologians. The question is, are we a good theologian or a bad theologian? We all have beliefs about God. We need to believe that God wants the best for us, knows what's best for us. We need to have an eternal rather than a temporal perspective. We need to be more focused on internals than externals. And we need to trust God's counsel, whether from his word or from his spirit, rather than thinking of it as mere input. And we need to be willing to take risks that the spirit leads us into. So the means of all this is the Holy Spirit. The battle itself is described in graphic detail in the second half of Galatians 5. I've already mentioned verse 16, to gratify the desires of sinful nature means complete, fulfilled, to surrender to, and that's simply not acceptable. Verse 17 describes a conflict between the sinful nature and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can block the desires of the sinful nature, and vice versa, the sinful nature can block the desires of the Spirit. In this case, we're making the new creation do old creation things, but we're certainly capable of doing that, going back to the slavery that we've been freed from. Verses 19 through 21 describes the acts of the sinful nature as distinct from verses 22 and 23 of chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. And the fact is we live in the tension between verses 21 and 22. There are two controlling passions and masters until Christ is formed in you, as Paul puts it in chapter 4, verse 19. It's that tension we live in, the battle between the spirit and the sinful nature. One answer to this is in verse 24, chapter 5, that the flesh would be crucified to us, that its impact on us would die a slow and painful death. Crucifixion is a great picture for this because it is pitiless, painful, lengthy, but ultimately decisive, at least in our glorification when we go to heaven. 
continuing in the next phase of eternal life. But even though it is crucified, that's the reality, John Stott says, we begin to fondle it. It's on the cross. It should be fading away, but instead we like to bring it back. Not a good move. So the means of the Spirit, the battle is the Spirit versus the flesh, and the fruit of the Spirit is the key. Chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, that great list of nine. And these things are difficult to measure, but they are natural byproducts. Good fruit come from good trees. We saw the same thing in chapter 6, verses 7 through 10, the idea of reaping and sowing. And Paul gave us some specific ways to look for the fruit. In ministering to others, it would look like unity in Christ, chapter 3, verse 28, serving one another in love, chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, restoring a sinner gently. We spent a long time on that in Galatians 6, 1, and then chapter 6, verse 2, carrying each other's burdens. And the opposite of that, Paul has described as well, biting, devouring, destroying, provoking, envying, the eight sins of discord. And then how to kill burden-bearing love with pride and fear. William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army, and he had five fears about 20th century Christianity, all of which happened to be featured in Galatians. Religion without the Holy Spirit, Christianity without Christ, morality without God, forgiveness without regeneration, and then heaven without hell. The first three of these are counterfeits, and it's only things of high value that are counterfeited. And we have to be very careful that legalism doesn't cause us to embrace the counterfeit. As Paul wraps up in chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, it's not a matter of circumcision, it's a matter of the new creation. In Genesis 1, creation is from formless void and dark and chaos until the Spirit of God hovered and created order, form, and light. Again, the legalist has a counterfeit. They have a false version of order and form, but it does not produce light, love, and grace in line with the kingdom of God and the ministry of Jesus. All right, let's take a break here. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. In this segment, we're going to wrap up our coverage of Galatians and talk in this segment quite a bit about legalism. One way to define this is that the law of Moses was held to be too high of a priority and misunderstood. God's word is powerful. It's often described in terms of dunamis or dynamite. Romans 1.16, the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. But like anything that's powerful, it can be misused, whether we're talking about dynamite, sex, atomic energy, or fire. For example, 2 Timothy 3.5 talks about a form of godliness that denies its power. It looks impressive, but it doesn't have power. It's not a ladder to heaven. That's justification. It's not a bicycle for spiritual progress, a sanctification, and it's not insurance against circumstances. If I do this, then God will do this, as if God is obligated to us to provide certain circumstances and blessings to us if we obey him. Think of Luke 15's elder son thinking, hey, what did I do to deserve this? So coming out of Judaism with its emphasis on the law, it was important that the law be redefined and re-understood in light of New Testament, New Covenant theology. N.T. Wright is very helpful on this, and so I'm going to be quoting from him at great length on this need for redefining the law that Paul is talking about at great length in Galatians. It starts with Galatians 2, 15 through 21, and Wright notes the radical redefinition here that can only be captured in the dramatic picture of someone dying 
and coming up a new person, like Paul describes in Galatians 2, his own religious experience is what had happened to Israel, at least if they would follow where God was going. So how were they and how are we to understand the law? Wright says the Torah was a necessary God-given thing with its own proper role within that story, and the God-given role of Torah has now come to a proper and honorable end, Not that there was anything wrong with it. Think of Hebrews 8 that describes it as obsolete. Obsolete doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means it's been surpassed by something else. But, back to right, it was never designed to be permanent. Granting that, any attempt to go back to Torah, the law, would be an attempt to turn back the divine clock and thereby to deny that the Messiah had come, that he had completed the divine purpose, that in him the Abrahamic promises had now been fulfilled. Wright says Galatians 3 is not then an argument hinging on the theological contrast between grace and law or even the psychological contrast between the struggle to please a legalistic God and the delight of basking in the undeserved pleasure of a gracious one. Those contrasts are indeed present, but that's not the point. To go back to the law, it would be like returning to a traffic jam, refusing a rightful inheritance, and like an adult going back into daycare. Those are the three pictures that he uses in chapter 3. So Wright talks about how Paul describes the continuity between the Abrahamic promises and the messianic fulfillment. There's a perceived discontinuity between Moses and Torah on the one hand and the Messiah on the other. Something new has happened. A fresh divine act has broken into the, the has broken into the divinely appointed cul-de-sac into which Israel has been forced by Torah. The long years when things seemed only to be getting worse are now over. A new age has overtaken a surprised and unready world. As Wright notes, it's Abraham who frames the argument of all of chapter 3. Paul starts with quick quotations from Genesis chapters 15, 12, and 18. As he does in Romans 4, by the way, Genesis 15 is the covenant chapter. Abraham was promised a worldwide family in chapter 12, and the characteristic of both the covenant and the family is faith. That's the opening and the closing of the chapter, and by the time we get to the end, it's clear that he, or rather his family, have been the subject all along. What constitutes the children or the seed of Abraham? And that's those who follow God by faith. In other words, the overarching plan of God is promise, gift, and grace, not law, works, and obedience. Wright has other useful things to say. For example, what he calls a traffic jam in chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, is not a differentiation between two different families, nor is it saying that Gentile believers and they alone receive the blessing of Abraham, or that Jewish believers alone receive the promised spirit, Paul is differentiating between the two different routes by which these two groups came into the one single family. Gentiles were brought in from the outside. Jews already, in a sense, within the covenant, were renewed as such by the gift of the Spirit. He's highlighting the things each group particularly needed. Gentiles to inherit the Abrahamic blessing, Jews to be renewed in covenant membership. And so the Messiah's death enables this. Gentiles brought in, Jews renewed. Why was this necessary? Because Torah had stood in the way, causing what Wright calls the traffic jam. At the time, there was debate whether the second temple had ended the curses promised in Deuteronomy if the people were disobedient and idolatrous. Paul firmly takes aside that that had not done the trick. It's not until Jesus and the Spirit that that curse is lifted. As Wright puts it, to put it more positively, the era of new covenant blessing promised in Deuteronomy 30 had not yet arrived. 
as Wright notes, Israel was called to bear the solution to the larger human problem, but was itself part of and meshed within the same problem through the law. The Torah can only be a key intermediate stage in the divine purpose. And so what's Paul saying to the Galatians? Well, as Wright puts it, you only had the chance to belong to the Messiah's family because the Torah has been dealt with by the Messiah's own death. The thought of you Gentile Christians going back and solemnly taking Torah upon yourselves is ridiculous. Why carefully wend your way back to the traffic jam in order to sit there stalled and stationary with unredeemed Israel? In chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, Wright notes that the argument there is about one family or two. God promised Abraham a single family, not two. The law threatens to create two families, and so the law cannot be allowed to overthrow the original promise and intention. As an aside, it's worth mentioning that all of this has implications for how we read the Old Testament, how we understand it and the Old Covenant, and how we communicate that to non-believers and to believers as well. Andy Stanley's book, Irresistible, is very helpful on this, at least provocative. I don't always agree with everything in that book, but part two, especially chapters 7 through 9 and 13, he talks through this issue, and he has reasonable warnings about how to communicate. For example, he encourages us to say things like Jesus or Paul says rather than the Bible says. The Bible is the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we can't easily conflate those two as if they are equivalent in authority. The Old Covenant is obsolete. I love the Old Testament. I think it's not used nearly enough, especially in a postmodern time that values narrative and the strength of the Old Testament is its beautiful narratives. But Stanley is correct in building on what Wright and others have said. We have to be very careful with the Old Covenant. Law is not the same as grace. The Old Covenant is not the same as the New Covenant. The Old Testament is not the same as the New Testament. Now back to legalism, why is it so attractive? And we've talked about this off and on throughout the entire study. It improperly allures, especially certain people, it provides a check-the-box mentality, it provides a measurable and easy standard, and who doesn't like that? But some people like it a lot. But at the end of the day, it's far too simple. Another way of putting this is if you have all the answers, then you really don't understand the questions. People and life are too complicated to be reduced to law and rules, and that's part of the spirit. To love people properly cannot be reduced to a contract or a list of do's and don'ts. We have to live in the tension, relying on the spirit to understand what we should do in any given context. One part of that standard is that it usually reduces to us avoiding sin. And again, when we think of Jesus, it's not just that he avoided sin, it's that he did the right thing every time out. The Christian life is not ultimately about what we don't do as much as it is what we do through the Spirit, following the example of Jesus. So it improperly allures, it also fails to properly allure. Francois Fenelon said, obedience must be loved rather than disobedience feared. That's what God wants from us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but it doesn't stop there. Or think about hell in this regard. Avoiding hell might be a fine reason to accept Jesus, but it sure shouldn't stop there. H.D. McCarty said, it's awfully tough to take a dirty bone away from a dog. He'll fight you for it, much as a lost man will fight you over his precious dirty sin. But throw a stake out in front of him, and he'll drop that bone in a minute. We have a stake to offer, is the idea. God's kingdom is good and great. We worship a good and great God. 
let's talk about that rather than the do's and don'ts that legalists want to foist upon us. All of this ultimately sells Christ too short and lives life too safe. Dorothy Sayers says, The dogma we find so dull, this terrifying drama of which God is the victim and the hero, if this is dull, then what in heaven's name is worthy to be called exciting? The people who hanged Christ never accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It's been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have very efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curators and pious old ladies. Those who knew him, however, objected to him as a dangerous firebrand. Or finally, let's think about this in terms of the arithmetic of legalism. It adds man-made requirements to justification and sanctification. It subtracts God's grace, Christ's blood and cross, and the Holy Spirit's role in our lives. It multiplies problems with self-image, ministry, and witnessing. And it divides people in disunity. Other than that, it's wonderful. Another theme is Paul's passion about these issues. It gets going early. He talks about another gospel, and those who share it as needing to be eternally condemned. Chapter 2, verse 5, there's no compromise. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, Paul confronts Peter's hypocrisy with a public rebuke. Chapter 3, verse 1, you foolish Galatians. Chapter 5, verse 12, the sarcasm of wishing they would emasculate themselves. Do we have this sort of passion in dealing with immorality and legalism in the church? Do we stand firm or yield on the wrong issues? For Paul, there's so much at stake here given legalism's effect on God, others, and ourselves. Back to chapter 4, verse 7, we're not a slave, we're called to be sons and ultimately heirs. And this is our self-image and our God-esteem. God sees us as a pardoned criminal, an adoptive son, and a deserving heir. Blaise Pascal said, The knowledge of God without that of our wretchedness creates pride. The knowledge of our wretchedness without that of God creates despair. The knowledge of Jesus Christ is the middle way because in him we find both God and our wretchedness. N.T. Wright argues that Paul is also so passionate about this because he connects it to the Exodus, parallels with Egypt, and basically says, why would you want to go back to Egypt and bondage? We've talked about that quite a bit. But it's also a clear apocalyptic event, the sudden unveiling of the long-awaited solution to Israel's problem, and also a clear messianic event with the sending of the Son. What's not to get excited about? What's not to defend here? God has moved in history. God has moved in our lives. We can't go back. Even Paul's quote of Isaiah 54.1 in Galatians chapter 4, verse 27 is indicative of this. If you think about the context of Isaiah 54.1, following after the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the reference to Sarah early in Isaiah 51, Yahweh is Jerusalem's husband in 54.5. He reestablishes his covenant of peace with her in chapter 54, verse 10, and then it leads to the universal invitation of the gospel in 55.1 through 3. As Wright puts it, it's hard to imagine that his quotation of Isaiah 54.1 was a random proof text. Instead, it's the Jerusalem above already established on earth through the Messiah and the Spirit. And finally, a few words about freedom going back to the climactic verses in chapter 5, verses 1 and 13. That we have freedom from a yoke of slavery in verse 1. That's carnality and the law. We're free of duty, others' approval, guilty consciences, wounds and fears of the past, anxiety from circumstances, fear of failure, and the what-ifs of the future. 
But it's not just about freedom from, it's freedom to. Freedom not to sin, but instead freedom to serve, be slaves to one another in love. Paul warns them not to go back to bondage or to turn liberty into license. Paul's warnings and challenges were essential to the Galatians and they're essential for the church today. Lord, help us to understand our freedom in you. Help us to understand grace and promise. Help us to defend the freedom of other people and help us to serve one another in love. We thank you for your son and we thank you for your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.